Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, my guest is Jason Gutman. Jason is a Mayo Clinic certified wellness coach and national board certified health and wellness coach, as well as a certified nutritionist and certified exercise physiologist. As an expert in behavior change and habit formation, Jason helps people turn knowledge and good intentions into action, habits, and results. And what I love most about Jason's work is he debunks this myth around diet culture where there seems to be a prevailing belief that you need to eat bland foods, things that you don't enjoy to suffer so that only at a later date you can eat the things that you really enjoy eating again. And he does the same thing with movement and working out. So really simply... If you enjoy what you're eating and enjoy the way that you're moving, you're obviously way more likely to sustain that and do it long term. And what I love most about how Jason dissects this is it, it takes a simple belief and he actually is able to implement it both with himself and his clients. You'll see that that wasn't always the case for him. He was someone who worked out almost 40 hours a week. It's really insane what he put his body through. So he knows what it means to push yourself to those extremes to think that's the way that you have to live and that that's the way you have to eat. You just boil chicken and uh, don't season food and it needs to be super bland so that you can look a certain way. Jason's been through the grinder on that and he has a really gentle way about him. And I imagine that when he's working with clients that he's able to help them really get to the essence of what it is that they truly want in their life, not just in the way you eat and the way that you move, but in your life. And I think you'll get a taste of that in this conversation as well. So I really enjoyed this one. I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of what wellness really means in Jason's words, and, and hopefully you'll get an idea of what it means in your own words as you reflect on it. Settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Jason has for us today. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I always start my interviews by asking this question because I'm really curious about everyone's childhood and, and why we are the way that we are. What was it like at your dinner table growing up? Yeah, so I, I think I remember my childhood dinner table sort of in two phases, maybe sort of pre-adolescence and then you know, high school, teenage time. Pre-adolescence was, was somewhat playful. And I remember sort of messing around with my brothers quite a bit. Uh, sort of, I came from a family of three boys. Mm -hmm. So we had some of that classic boys will be boys going on at the dinner table. And then, you know, after adolescence, uh, and, and maybe this will something we'll get into because it's, it's definitely part of my wellness journey, I became what I would call non-judgmental at this point, sort of hyper serious. Um, so I was that, you know, late middle school student or high school student that was, you know, thinking about my homework already, 
yeah, just kind of hyper serious, hyper, hyper focused and, and maybe not dropping into that family experience as much as I could have at the time. Was, was there a role that you fell into as being one of three boys? And I, I don't know what your parents were like, but was there a role that you fell into that, I don't know, informs the way that you move through the world now? It was there, it sounds like, at, you know, in one phase, there was like playful Jason who was just, he wasn't thinking about a lot of stuff. And then maybe something turned where you were like, I, you know, maybe this is the way that I'll get love or attention or something is like being really serious. Was, was there something in there like that? Well, that's a, that's, a, that's actually a super interesting question. I think the, the super serious came when I was, a I was 13 or 14 and I was, I was overweight and that was super challenging. And my response to it was to get in really good shape and to be a really good athlete. And that that's really where some of that hyper seriousness came from. But I think a more interesting answer to your question of sort of a role I fell into, because I think this goes back to birth or because it, it really it doesn't feel like an innate part of my temperament, but it does feel like a role I learned to play. And it was something like uh, we could call it, you know, the good boy. Uh, you know, and, and part of that is doing well in school. Part of that is, uh, you know, behaving, so to speak, in, in public, you know, in the in the food stores and at church. And but yeah, that was definitely a role I, I slipped into, I think, to uh, alleviate what was to me the sort of the stresses in my family. Mm -hmm. you know, I think if I was too rambunctious or gregarious, I would have been making more trouble for my both of my parents, but especially my mom. Mm -hmm. so uh yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought about that too much but i think that's really that's really that's how i'd answer that question mm, very interesting yeah with with regard to when you were overweight when you were i think you said you were 13 or so was what was the i imagine that there was a lot of really negative self-talk to because i i know i'll frame this question around i know that your work today is uses a very gentle approach to wellness and it would really go against the idea that you have to like really crush yourself to get into better shape or that the idea that it needs to be really hard or that you need to do something against your will mm -hmm. was was that the case when you were 13 was it stuff that you enjoyed doing that got you into better shape or was this like beating yourself into submission oh it was it was firmly beating myself into submission <laughs> And I, and I think the self-talk, uh, I don't even know if it was in words, but definitely in feelings was something like, yeah, what, you know, what's wrong with you uh, was part of the, part of the self-talk. And then the response to that self, that self-talk was something like the famous, you know, Nike saying, just do it or something like, you know, something like that. Yeah, I was really good. And, you know, it's not a completely useless skill overdone. It's a real problem, but I was very good at making myself do stuff. Mm -hmm. And did that, as you continued to develop into maybe later teens and started to look at what do I want to do with my life and what career path am I going to go down? Yeah. I don't know if we've ever spoken about this before, but did you start in some sort of wellness adjacent profession and, or fitness profession? And like, what did, what did that look like when you were becoming of college age and looking at what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah, it's also a really good question. When I went to college, I went undecided major. 
I went to a liberal arts college and that, that um, in retrospect, that was in alignment with my true self. And that, I love diversity of thought. I love science, I love philosophy, I love history, I love languages. Um, so that, that was really up my alley and I really enjoyed that. As far as making it practical, what I thought I would do initially was uh, become a teacher, become a high school teacher, uh, or a, you know a maybe even maybe a middle school or elementary school teacher, but a you know a, a, a teacher before college. And at the school I went to, you were required to you couldn't be an education major. You had to major in something else and also study education because they wanted you to come out with a degree in in something else. And so. Early sophomore year, I was leaning toward, I think history is what I was going to study, make my major. I was going to study history and education. And somewhere along the lines in freshman year or beginning of sophomore year, I discovered that my school had a program in exercise science. Those are, that's a field that emerged out of the field physical education, but it's, it's uh, more expansive, prepares a person to do um, quite a bit more things. It was used for pre-physical therapy. It was used for pre like fitness training or wellness education. And I think the third track that was available was something like physical education. Now here's what's interesting. I was still in the throes of that way overdoing exercise and, and sports. Uh, so really I wasn't doing that as a stepping stone toward what I'm doing now as a wellness coach. I was doing that the positive way of saying it would be because I enjoyed it, the negative way of saying, but, but realistic, this is very common. I mean, we're getting, we're getting deep quickly. This is very common. It was a way of sort of covering up my obsession with exercise mm -hmm. um, and, and making it a, uh, making it legitimizing it, you know, like, look, there's, there's science behind all of this stuff. That's common in nutrition. Uh, it's common in psychology in general. You know, we're, we're 17, 18, 19, 20, and we're troubled in different ways. And we're like, well, let's study the thing that we want to know about ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. So that's really why I, why I got into that. Went to graduate school, uh, mostly because I wanted to stay in school. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed school. But there was another reason, you know, there were, uh, I discovered during college that there was a path to becoming a strength and conditioning coach. And it would basically, you know, would require a master's degree in exercise science or a more specific aspect of exercise science, like exercise physiology. And that's what I did. But I continued through graduate school, um, my obsessive ways about exercise and sport. And uh, honestly, uh, as much as I was a decent student, I wasn't career focused. I, I, was, I was focused on exercise and sports. Mm -hmm. And school was something I had to do because that's what you do when you're between, you know, 14 and 23, 24. So that, that's, you know, I, so, and then I ended up studying nutrition as part of graduate school and getting certified in sports nutrition. But again, it was all in that spirit. Uh, the, the idea of authentic wellness or becoming a wellness coach came later than that. Mm -hmm. There's, there's two follow questions that I have to that, that I think they might tie in together to the same answer. One of the questions is when did you, and it might've been several moments, but was there one that comes to mind where 
you the just do it Nike mentality started, you you realize what well, this is my body's breaking down on me, or there, there was some event maybe that triggered a something's got to change here. And the the second question I have adjacent to that is, what did this look like in your initial career path? Like, did you, when you got your master's degree in nutrition, did you start as a personal trainer? Were you, were you still kind of going down that path of like, I want to coach people? And is this like a way that I'm hiding my pain? So I, you could take either question or both. I think they kind of tie together. Okay. Yeah. And I might have to have you circle back to, to, to one after I uh, sure. answer, answer the other one. So uh, yeah, I'll start with the first one. So I was so, um, so driven, so obsessed. I think addicted is even a, even a fair word to, to exercise, to sports and specifically to, um, to succeeding in sports and to succeeding with um, building or maintaining quote unquote perfect body that there was, there was very little that could stop me. And there were, um, before a bigger episode, there were small episodes of fatigue um, that tried to get my attention, but really didn't. And it wasn't until I was 24, I'm in my mid forties now, that I, I really crashed. Uh, my body did something remarkable from about 14 to 24, which was handle all of that stress and, and not really have a problem until it did. And then when it did, it was big. Uh, and that's that, that literally that stopped me in my tracks. Can I just um, interject really quickly too? Yeah. Can you, can you just give like a brief idea of what that looked like? Like, were you running 10, 10 miles a day? Were you like strength training seven days a week for three hours? Well, so there were, there were many different phases, but I think um, it, probably most relevant is when I got to graduate school in Colorado. And by the way, my master's was in exercise physiology. It, it included some study of nutrition. Mm -hmm. I discovered triathlon in graduate school and triathlon, the sport really rewards that work ethic uh, as much as any sport does. And uh, yeah, at that peak, there were, there were weeks I was exercising 30 or 35 hours between swimming, cycling, running, some strength training, mm -hmm. which is quite a bit. Now, graduate school makes it a little more possible. I mean, it's still kind of remarkable that I did that to myself, that I did that because, uh, you know, it's not a 40 hour week job, but I was a teaching assistant. So I, I taught for 20 hours, took my classes and had to be working on a thesis as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, the way I, it's funny, I don't talk about this that much because it's, you know, I'm, I live 180 degree different life at this point, but it was, I, I would put this word on it. I would, I would call it inhumane in, in many ways. It's uh, I, I was tired most of the time. I wouldn't have said I was, but I was tired most of the time. Um, it didn't leave space for much else in life. And I think maybe most inhumane was that is sort of, was sort of the inner life of it. It didn't make room for uh, the full spectrum of emotions. It was sort of uh, the, the, the emotions were um, work hard and work hard. Um, <laughs> you, know, what's, what, you know, I guess, you know, the, the silver, a, a silver lining or a, a heartening aspect is uh, in retrospect, you know, my experience is that my true self never got fully extinguished. I can remember being in the graduate school, uh, the graduate, the, the teaching assistant office, and 
being on the giving and receiving end of practical jokes, like pretty significant fun ones. Like we would, you know, I, I would mess, we would mess around. That's a heartening thing. As much as I lost myself, it never, it never, that part of the, my true self never died. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as I began recovering my true self, it, it started coming back more and more and more. So I think that was your first question is sort of like what stopped me. So when I'll, I'll just add a little bit to that, what was that like to, to really crash It's interesting because it was kind of, kind of overnight. Now it was 10 years in the making, but I experienced it as kind of overnight because in April of that year, I ran the Boston marathon and I came in the top hundred of 20,000 people. And within two, it was about two weeks after that. Uh, it just, the, the fatigue just really, really, really snowballed and started to really, really crush me. And, uh, some pain in my, the sides of my knees started to really settle in. And, uh, it was, it was a, it was a real full experience of my body saying like, we just can't exercise anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as that settled in, like I wasn't sleeping well, um, it was really my first experience of something like depression. And it was, it was really like nothing worked well anymore. You know, like couldn't, you know, I, I would be tired, but couldn't sleep. Um, mm-hmm. I would, yeah, I, I, I literally couldn't make myself exercise. Like it just wasn't, wasn't there either biomechanically or biochemically. And it became a, it became a, it was, it was a lonely experience because it wasn't something I could explain truly to anyone. Um, I still looked fit, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and because that doesn't go away immediately. And uh, I had, didn't have any bones sticking out or any blood on, on me. Um, but I just, I felt like, you know, I felt very ill and I felt uh, very ill-equipped to deal with it. And then even as I started talking to medical professionals and, and, and other professionals, they didn't have a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't a, a sort of, um, something they could quickly treat. So we can get more into maybe how I recovered and came out of that. Yeah. If, if that would be interesting at some point, but let me circle back to your second, remind me your second question. Well, I actually want to scrap the second question okay. because I, I, I want to get in exactly where your, your mind was already going. I, I want to okay. know. So it, it's very clear that you were in a lot of pain and maybe the doctors you were going to still didn't have much that they were giving you by way of useful information or ways that you could heal yourself. Where did you go from there? Uh, well, you know, I, I had, I remember sitting on a bench um, and, and just sort of had this feeling wash over me. That was something like, uh, well, clearly we have to, I think the words probably were something like put ourselves back together, but it had a double meaning. It meant um, sort of heal these ailments I was experiencing and also ask, answer the question, question or questions that I'd been avoiding for 10 years. And that, you know, that was, that was, that wasn't something I could do uh, in one fell swoop. It was something I had to do in layers. I'm remembering that those, that early part of my recovery, reading voraciously, anything I could get my hands on that gave me some answers to, to what I was feeling um, and, 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 and helped me feel better in some way. 
was, was part of the sort of the inner recovery. Uh, I started journaling. I remember journaling voraciously too. And there wasn't a lot of structure to it at that point. It was really just writing what I was feeling, you know, just free flowing writing what I was feeling. That, that was very helpful. And uh, on the more quote unquote physical front, I, this is what the approach I took was, and this forms the basis of the, the approach I use today personally and professionally was, well, if they can't say, if no one can tell me like this is broken or this is broken or this is broken and this is how you fix it, I'm just going to, I wouldn't have used this word at the time, but the, this is what it ultimately was. I'm just going to nourish myself as much as possible. I'm going to, you know, input into my being all of the things that help me to, to thrive as much as I can and just sort of like flood my system with all this goodness. And that's, that was uh, food, which we can go into more detail because, you know, I studied nutrition. I was an athlete. So I thought I knew how to eat well, but I, I really wasn't um, before I got hurt. The, the, I mean, this, this sounds obvious at this point, but to, you can imagine to my 14 to 24 year old before getting hurt, this wasn't obvious. You know, I started to think about resting um, <laughs> and I started to think about sleeping um, and, and optimizing those two things. This next part is probably the most interesting and enjoyable part of me to think about in retrospect and really informs my approach to wellness uh, these days is uh, something, so, so a, a physician or, or someone must have said to me, um, introduced me to the idea of stress. Um, you know, obviously I'd heard the word of stress, but I was, you know, it, that wasn't, I, I would have thought stress was for, I would have used the more uh, worse word for it, but stress is for cowards or sissies or whatever. I, I didn't think I experienced stress to that point in my life. Um, but I started learning about stress and how excessive exercise is a stress and it's a, and it's a chronic stress. Um, and then that we can experience all kinds of stress. You know, we can experience work-related stress and relationship-related stress and environmental stress. And so that, so that, that got me going into on some really, 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 really deep reflection because, you know, the first answer to that is something like what we'd call stress relief or, uh, right. So, um, things like breathing activities, um, uh, things like sitting, you know, um, what an athlete might've done, you know, might think of as a recovery technique, you know, like sitting in a hot tub or sitting in a sauna, things like that. But I quickly realized that that was um, the tip of the iceberg, right? That, I mean, I just, I, it, it occurred to me that, well, if, if I or someone has a whole bunch of work-related stress, doing five minutes of breathing activities is kind of like a whisper on a screen. Like it's, it's, it's nice, but why don't we reduce the work stress? Um, and, and, and so that was cool. And then, you know, I'm sort of fast forwarding through revelations that probably took months or, or even, sure. even years. Right. And then it occurred to me that sort of the opposite of work-related stress or relationship-related stress, which is where most of our stress comes from, those, those two areas, is work-related fulfillment and relationship-related fulfillment. And I was like, whoa, so that's an epiphany. I'm not just like playing defense on stress. I can proactively make a fulfilling life 
and then I experienced less stress. And isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, so I, I know that was that was a, a long explanation, but what I really realized at the time was that uh, I thought that being well was someone who exercised a lot and ate reasonably well. And it occurred to me that what really is someone who is well is uh, has a harmonious relationship with him or herself, has fulfilling work life, has a fulfilling relationship life, uh, gets plenty of sleep and rest, eats well. And I learned more about what that means and then exercises a little bit. So it was like a totally, um, I, a, you know, a totally different side of the coin. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of learning encapsulated in a four or five minute explanation. Yes. Yeah. And I know you named that it, some of these realizations took months or even years, but was this facilitated in any, was this, I'm going to back up when, in my own journey, I found it really helpful to turn to YouTube videos or, or books as well, and uh, maybe even speak about it with friends. But I ended up making a lot of the choices that I make currently today, just based on my own research. I didn't work with, say, a wellness coach or have a doctor that became a teacher of mine in some way. So was this mostly done on your own reflections, your own curiosity, just, um, you know, Jason just needs to get out of pain as soon as possible. And then that turned into like, well, this actually feels good. And then it kept going. Or did you have some sort of mentor or assistance, anything that kind of informed the way that you got to where you are today? Early goings was uh, was mostly myself. I had I had turned to some local professionals to try to get some help. Their help was relatively limited. I don't think because their skills were limited. I think because uh, my challenges were so challenging. Some of them turned me on to some authors or podcasters that played a role. Uh, certainly, you know, certainly provided me with either some information or some inspiration. But for the for the most part, it was it was I was taking a little from here, a little from here, a little from here, and and forging my own path. A little while later, really not related to that initial uh, recovery from that from my big collapse, I did start working with a with a coach who I've maintained a relationship with for seven or eight years now. Mm -hmm. That's been extremely helpful in my in my continued evolution. Uh, but to answer your question, that came after I was really out of that super dark period. Yeah. And so let's, let's get to today. This is where I wanted to spend the bulk of the conversation. Sure. What, does, what does wellness today mean to you? And what does it look like to work with you as a coach? Like, what are, what are your philosophies, principles, et cetera? Well, you know, really in, in, informed through coming out of that recovery and healing, wellness means to be, um, it's a hard word to define because to me, it's, uh, it's almost like saying, um, describe the sky. Like you describe the sky by saying it looks like the sky, right? Like wellness is, 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 is wellness. I think a decent way of explaining it is um, the two words that are common in our culture, happiness and health. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's both of those. I think it's a hybrid of those. I think 
Um, the ideas of happiness and health come from the split of body, heart, and mind that happened in, th in thinking hundreds of years ago. But something like happiness hyphen, hyphen health, thriving, flourishing, uh, being just being as a lot, being fully alive, uh, is I think what what wellness is. And so in terms of how it manifests, and I think an interesting, I, I like uh, talking about the word well-being as having being in it. So in the idea that wellness isn't something you have, it's something that you do. Because um, that would be my other way of defining wellness from sort of the, what we do to be well is something like proactively meeting most of our needs most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the verb wellness. The, and the noun wellness is something like, I mean, it's, it's funny because I have conversations with, with prospects and new clients all the time. And I give each and them the opportunity to talk about what wellness means to them. And the answers are as unique as, as people are unique. And yet they always say, every one of them says something like, I just want to feel great. Mm -hmm. So there are all these complex answers that have scientific words and philosophical words and almost all of them, from whatever walk of life they come from, will end up saying something like, I just, it's just feeling my best, or it's just feeling great, something like that. So I don't think it's, it's much more complicated than, complicated than that. Yeah. Okay. Well, food is certainly a big component of that and nutrition. And I wanted to, so that's one leg of wellness that I wanted to get into with you. Sure. What does a day of eating look like for you personally? And then- how do you help a client hone in on what's optimal for them to be eating? It's, it's a good question. So I have a saying that I like, just eat real food and really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really simple, powerful way to cut through the complexity of what's out in public discourse around nutrition. Uh, it's also a way through diet culture, you know, which is, which is mostly about telling people, uh, to restrict and exclude food in general and certain foods. So typical day for of me, I, I mean, people, I eat almost no processed food and it's not difficult for me. Like I don't, coming out of that, that challenging time, that, that shifted. So, cause before I was hurt, uh, food for me was um, simply fuel. It was, um, I need to eat enough to keep exercising as much as I'm exercising. What it needed to become in my healing was it needed to be very, very, very um, nutritious. It needed to be full of the nutrients that will allow my body to literally rebuild itself. Uh, that I think during that time is when I was really introduced to that idea, to the idea that every cell in our body is, you know, is regenerated over a period of time. Uh, and I was like, holy cow. So if my adrenal glands are completely wiped out, resting and sleeping, I, I remember developing a saying at that time of um, something like our, our bodies are, are built out of the food we eat when we sleep and rest. Mm. Um, because all of those components have to be there. If, if we're eating the, the building blocks of our cells, but we're not getting enough sleep or not getting enough rest or we're stressed all the time, we can't do the sort of um, construction work of, of making new cells. So that's how I started to think about nutrition. I uh, started to think about food from a nutrition perspective is as nutrient dense as possible. Macro, you know, the, the 
make sure I'm getting carbohydrate, protein, and fat, but also make sure it's as micronutrient dense as possible. And the simple answer to that is, is to go, is to have real food. But then I started to get into more of the psychology of food. And that's where that um, eat real food and really enjoy it comes from, because I came across in myself and other people, all these twisted relationships with food that, you know, it was sort of an enemy. And yet it's so naturally enjoyable to eat. And real food is so naturally enjoyable. It's funny because I, one thing that happened when I started wanting to eat more nutritiously was I started eating foods I never ate. What were, like I, I barely ate eggs before I was 24 or 25. I, I don't think I'd ever seen, ever eaten an avocado. Uh -huh. um, uh, and a lot of these foods, it was fascinating in my recovery. A lot of these foods tasted exquisitely good in the way of like, my body was saying, oh my God, I've needed this for a long time. Uh, that was particularly true of, of um, anything that was, was very fat rich. Mm -hmm. um, during those triathlon years and prior, I was, you know, I was deliberately denying myself um, more fat rich foods. You know, another realm where that really stands out to me is our spices. I started having ginger and turmeric I was like, holy cow, there's so much flavor in such a small amount of food. And of course, you know, those foods are, are loaded with nutrients. Garlic is another example, right? So I'm, I'm really simple. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really no rules except eat when I'm hungry, eat real food, enjoy it, eat with people as often as I can. Um, cause I, I think eating is almost like, um, you know how if you're out for a walk and you see something spectacular or you hear a great song, you have the, the instinct to want to, you know, to share it with someone in your life. Mm -hmm. I think a great meal is somehow it tastes better when you're doing it with with people you love. So um, so that's um, really how I approach it. And um, that typically means, you know, for me these days, something like a mid morning meal, like you know, what we might call like brunch and then a, or a dinner on the earlier side. That's, that's usually when I'm hungry. And then I, I just make something interesting out of the real food that's, that I have, you know, available. I shop at mostly at farmer's markets and in farmer's uh, fish markets and places like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then you asked, you know, how I work on this with clients. It's a, it's a, um, it's a big answer because uh, what people are looking for are often looking for is like, what's your system? Um, my system follows my personal system, which is that I help a person discover their personal system. Uh -huh. So in three back-to-back -back hours, I can work with three people that, that eat very differently with the common trait that they're all generally moving from more of a more processed food to, to more, to more, to more real food. But I don't, I really don't think there's, there's one way of eating that works for all people. I believe that um, both sort of culturally, but also physiologically. Uh, share a quick insight on that uh, with a book I'm, I'm reading at the moment is about essentially about evolution. And uh, it's not specifically about nutrition, but the authors uh, give this example of since agriculture and uh, humans started drinking milk of other animals, uh, you know, there's, there's a common train of thought these days that we're just not evolved to drinking milk. And I, I think largely, largely that's true. 
because that 10,000 years since agriculture is a very short period of time in the context of the lifespan, uh, the time span of humans. However, these authors, I'm going to, I'm not going to remember all of the biology of the example they share, but certain humans who went uh, to, to Northern latitudes uh, in the last 10,000 years, uh, their bodies kept producing lactase, which breaks down lactose, uh, kept doing it at really, really efficient levels. And the way they explain it is at those Northern latitudes with less sunlight, um, with less vitamin D, either the lactase, no, I think the, the, the lactose in milk uh, serves a similar function as vitamin D. And if these people weren't drinking milk, they were towards uh, heading toward the vitamin D deficiency diseases like rickets. So to tell one of those people in sort of a dogmatic way, you shouldn't drink milk because I have this rule of this diet that I espouse would be a physiological mistake. So that to me is fascinating that we are, we are unique from our ancestry and our evolution. And so I think people are unique and I help people learn to, to eat well in, in ways that are unique to them. And I'll share one last thought on that is that it works um, in the sense that um, a big part of my practice is helping people improve biometrics blood sugar levels, blood pressure, blood cholesterol levels. And when people go from eating less real food to more real food, more processed food to less processed food, regardless of how much carbohydrate or fat there is, or regardless of how much animal or plant food there is, that stuff gets better. Uh -huh. uh, th does that make sense? Yes, of course. So that, I mean, that, that it's, uh, it's remarkably simple. The, the fun part of the, of my work as a wellness coach is the behavior change and habit formation work mm -hmm. because that's just meeting people at the human level. If someone's 30 or 40 or 80 and they've been eating a certain way and they know they want to eat less processed food and more real food and they want to, and um, I'm guiding in that, in that direction. The fun part isn't um, giving them lists of processed food and lists of real food. It's, um, working through with them why it's important for them to make these kinds of improvements and what their day-to-day -day life is like so that we can help them uh, start to actually uh, make these kind of improvements. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up diet culture at, at one point or maybe multiple points. I would love to hear more about the maybe the psychology of diet culture and if this feels like a relevant tie-in, I've, I've heard you bring up willpower versus skill power before. Sure. And yeah, I would love to hear you discuss like what's, what's the, I guess the, the challenge of relying on willpower and what do you mean when you say skill power? Yeah. So um, the challenge of relying on willpower is that it's a, it's an exhaustible resource. You know, so we start each day, each week, each month, each year with a bank account of, of willpower. Let's call it um, $100 a day. Mm -hmm. And all of the times we need to exert our will during a day are a withdrawal of that willpower. And so there will be a time in most people's days uh, that uh, there's, just, there's just nothing there. 
and you know, and that's evidenced by how people struggle on on diets or you know any other sort of uh, very absolute short term program. And skill power is sort of a pop culture word for what in psychology is called self-efficacy, which is essentially task-specific self-confidence, not self-confidence like I generally feel good about myself, but that I'm confident that I can do this thing. Uh, So I'd say my typical client comes to me with a lot of self-confidence in several areas of their lives. They're often proficient in their career. They're often uh, proficient at parenting but they struggle to make themselves a nutritious breakfast. It's just not a skill they, they currently have. But just like we learn how to play an instrument or learn a language, it's a skill that most people can learn. Uh, and there are a set of uh, steps one can take besides just doing it that will help them develop uh, a new skill. Uh, one example of that is Uh, taking the thing you want to do, just like someone would do if they were learning to play a musical instrument, and turn it into a smaller task. Um, So what one problem people make when they, a folly of diet culture is a person goes from eating in style A to style B overnight. They go from, they try to go from zero to hundred miles an hour. They say, at one point, it was common to say, no more fat. These days, it's common to say, no more carbohydrate. But we can we can have a small step, you know. What so? What's an example of a small step is, um, let's say somebody already has a nutritious breakfast that they have sometimes. Someone, you know, some they'll they'll make a smoothie. To use, we'll use that as an example. In week one of working together, their action step isn't eat a smoothie every day. It's uh, make a smoothie three mornings before I go to work. Um, now, what happens? Well, someone might say, well, if if that's good for them, why wouldn't you tell them to do it seven days a week? The reason is they're likely to fail because right now they're doing it once a month and to go to seven days a week is a, is a big behavior change. And what will happen is when someone comes back second conversation and I say, how'd you do? If they, they had a smoothie five days a week, they'd say, well, I, I failed. I, I only did five days. I was supposed to do seven you know, and they'll say, flashback to uh, that, what I said to myself when I was 13, what's wrong with me? Um, I just, I just don't have enough willpower. I guess, you know, I failed again. Whereas if we set the action step of three, uh, they're highly likely to succeed. They're going to come back and say, I did it. I can't believe I did it. Uh, I feel so good. I, you know, I've been trying to do this. I'm excited. I did it. And this, and without me even telling them, they'll often say, next week, I want to try four. Because when we succeed at something, it's, it's exciting. And we want more of that excitement. So we'll set a, a challenge for ourselves that's, you know, another one notch ahead. So that's, that's an example of um, how we can build a skill using something other than, than willpower. Mm-hmm. In this example, so let's just say someone's coming to you and they say, you know, they, they have a healthy habit in some way. They are having a smoothie once every two weeks or once a month. And, and then they, they might set the, the big goal of, I want to have it every day this week. And you, you're probably saying to yourself, that's a huge shift. Like, let's, let's focus on maybe two or three days a week. 
and maybe you even confidence scale them. You go on a, on a scale of one to 10, how, how confident do you feel that you'd be able to have a smoothie just two times a week? And they're like a nine, like that feels very achievable. Right. Does it ever, is it ever the case that after all of that, the client still comes back to you and says, I, I still didn't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I didn't have a smoothie this week, even though I was 90% sure that I would do it. And if that does happen, where do you take them from there? Yeah, we lean into um, the other aspects of skill building that I use. So, you know, one would be um, that make the, the actions you're taking are in alignment with your values. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would ask them, hey, just remind me, why is it important to you be, to be improving your eating habits? And they'll talk about what that is. And, and it, it might different for every person, but it, it, it could be, um, as I mentioned earlier, it often has to do with something like feeling good, but there's, you know, there's specifics. So like that person might be struggling with high blood sugar levels and their physician is talking about going on medication. And that's something they want to avoid. Uh, they might be having a hard time keeping up with their kids or grandkids. And something they really want to do is have adventures with their kids and grandkids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might simply um, want mastery of this challenge. Um, oftentimes, this is something that a person has, has um, burdened a person for many years, and they really want to want to overcome that challenge. But so I'll, I'll We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so in, you know, what I think what is the, the go-to in most places is to double down on that idea of just do it. You know, they just have to try harder. They just have to do it. But a lot comes from giving a person an opportunity to dwell in, in their values and dwell in why this is important to them. That often becomes uh, an emotional experience or an emotion-full experience. And... Uh, this is critical. Uh, the, the Latin root of the word emotion means to move, um, as in to stir or agitate. Our emotions literally move us to take action. So if we're staying in that sort of cold clinical world of, all right, the person wants to do this to lower their blood pressure or, uh, or lose weight or because their physician is recommending it, that might be where there's some of that stuckness or ambivalence. Um, so we'll we'll have conversations that, that people get to their, their personal reasons for wanting to do this. Uh, another two big things are to have conversations about a person's interests and a person's strengths. Because what we might discover is that person committed to smoothie breakfasts because that's what their friends are doing, or right. that's what they think they're supposed to be doing. But it turns out they hate drinking something cold in the morning. And what stopped them in that first week, even though they said they were confident, um, wasn't that they didn't think they had enough willpower, wasn't that they didn't think they had enough time in the morning to pull that off. Actually, just don't, they just don't like, that's not something they enjoy. So if we discovered that, we would talk about other ideas. We can usually find something that is more in alignment with a person's values, interests, strengths, uh, something that's more convenient. These are the um, skill power things we're, we're playing with. And what we're really doing is leveraging human nature. Because and, and I can sort of prove this to a person because a person will say to me in sort of a self-damning way, I just go for the junk food because it's more convenient. Or I just go for the junk food because I enjoy it. 
if we can make options for meals and snacks that are enjoyable and convenient, we're using the same aspects of human nature. We're simply using them to the person's advantage instead of to their detriment. And I, I think in some ways, that's what I mean by what I said earlier, that I, I hope it didn't sound arrogant to anyone listening, that it doesn't, that it's easy for me or effortless for, for me to eat well, because I'm not doing it from the perspective of there are, there are tasty foods that are bad for me and there are yucky foods that are good for me. And I have to simply summon my willpower to avoid the, the tasty foods that are bad for me and force myself to eat the yucky foods that are good for me. I've created an entirely different game, which is how to thoroughly enjoy real food. And I've made it in, in alignment with my values, interests, strengths. I've made it convenient. And then ultimately like that, that's turned it into a habit. So now it would take me more energy to go against it. Mm -hmm. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one area that you and I have explored together, Jason, that's emerging as a curiosity in, in this moment for me is let's say someone now has really mastered the basics around that and they've, they've made that shift and they realize, oh, you know, I can eat really healthy foods at, with convenience as well. And this feels good and it feels sustainable over the course of a lifetime and not just, I need to do this diet for three months. It becomes this really self-sustaining thing that it's like it's a way of life and like why would it it, it does become easy why would i want to eat any other way i actually feel shitty if i eat a different way mm -hmm. if someone gets to that point when they're working with you this is the thing that you and i have discussed something deeper oftentimes emerges where we we look at like how can this apply in all areas of our life or yeah, there, there might be an emergence of like spirituality or like, what's, what's my place here? Because when, in my experience, if we're fully healed, we're more available to whatever energy is, is moving through us or around us. Does that ever happen with the clients that you're working with? And, and like, where do you go from there? It happens uh, almost all the time. And I would say that it happens before what we might call uh, mastery of, of eating well, but even, even on the road to, to mastery of eating well, it, it happens. It can be summarized in the popular saying, how you do one thing is how you do anything. Uh, that's how I experience it is eating is sort of the most obvious or easily available way to engage in the game, and I mean the, the word game in a positive sense, like we're playing with life and playing with our relationship with ourselves. And the, the game is, I have a human need, I'm hungry, right? And I'm going to, I used this phrase earlier, I'm gonna proactively meet that need. Mm -hmm. And you know, and that, that may sound a little clinical. For some people might enjoy the phrase, like I'm gonna lovingly meet that need. And I think both, you know, both of those work. It's not a dissimilar spirit of the way a parent treats a child or um, an uncle or aunt or grandparent treats a child. It's not a dissimilar spirit from how many of us treat our friends. They announce either um, overtly or covertly a need. And as someone who cares about them, we help them meet that need. We have that opportunity every day with our hunger. 
and and as we were talking about, you know, many of us get better and, and better and better at that. To your question, what often happens in that process is a light bulb goes off and we say, I can do that in, in other, with other needs. Uh, an obvious one would be something like sleep. So a person is eating better, feeling better. And then they might say to themselves, why am I staying up till 1230 in the morning, scrolling the internet? Because it always leaves me feeling groggy in the morning, or it feels, leaves me tired in the afternoon, or, or I end up snoozing three times and then I'm rushing in the morning. I don't want to do that anymore. Um, so then they'll start applying that, what the, the way they're treating themselves around food to sleep. My experience is it usually goes surface to deep, right? So the, it's, it's, it's food, and then the next kind of things are more like, sleep, exercise, rest. And then that's when, a, when, the, when they get some momentum in those areas, that's when a person will start to look at work and relationships where there's usually some heavier lifting to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I alluded to earlier, that, that work being the most fascinating to me, that's, we just spend so much of our time there. I mean, that's what's interesting is that in popular culture, we think about wellness as broccoli and swimming, but yet we're spending 30, 40, 50 hours a week working. And when we're in the relationships we're in, we're in them all the time, whether we're in the presence of the people we're in relationship with or not. And there's so much opportunity there to cultivate our well-being, And it's not soft and intangible when, you know, I'm a, I'm a, exercise physiologist. I've studied physiology deeply. And I can tell you that when we're in harmony in our work life and in our relationship life on a cellular level, things are operating better. And there's, you know, robust scientific evidence that those areas of our life affect what we might call our quote unquote physical uh, well-being. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's super fun. I can think of an example. I can think of a handful of examples. I, I guess I, as an am amalgamation of the examples, it's super fun. What the way it'll usually come up is in a session with a client, I'll ask an open-ended question, like toward the end of a session, is there anything else, you know, you want to be working on in the upcoming weeks to continue to improve your well-being? And it's not something they'll have brought up before, but they'll say something like, they'll take a, they'll sigh. I just did it sort of uh, mirroring them. They'll, they'll sigh and say, you know, I haven't really liked my job in a long time. And I think I can do something about it. I think I might be able to, you know, talk to my boss about taking on some projects that are more enjoyable, or I might be able to transfer. I've always wanted to be in such and such department, but I didn't think I could do it. And now I think I can do it. And they built that muscle through these activities of, of learning to take better care of themselves in these simpler, easier areas. And that, that's super fun. Mm -hmm. Well, there have been a couple of times in the conversation that you mentioned books that you found really helpful. I would love to explore that. And yeah, are there any books that are coming to mind that you have found to be most instrumental in your growth that have changed the way you think, changed the way you act? I would love to get into this as also kind of a launch pad into the deeper 
like philosophical spiritual element of your work and and like kind of just who you and I both are we've connected a lot on this it's a it's a fun question for one particular reason which is that I mentioned you know voraciously reading in that early part of my healing but what the other thing that makes it interesting is for the last solid five years I haven't read that I haven't read much at all Mm. I've really been in a phase where I, I suppose, you know, one is more unconscious and one is more conscious. The conscious choice was really in the direction of, I want to be living everything I've read to this, but like, I want to be applying and I don't necessarily want to be taking in more information or ideas. The, um, so yeah, that, that, so, so there's, there, that was the more conscious reason. I, th- I, I think the more unconscious reason was I just felt like um, I, I, it actually escapes me. I don't remember exactly when I, when I introduced that idea, there was another reason in my mind. It might come back to me. But the other thing that makes it interesting is I mentioned to you, I started, I'm reading a book currently. And very recently I've decided to start reading paper books as a way of uh, making sure I'm not spending too much time online. Because I found that my, I, I think that was the unconscious reason I had in mind was that I found that what was fulfilling that reading books need from the past was things like listening to podcasts. And so books sort of fell by the wayside. So one book uh, that had a big influence on me was, was uh, Mastery by George Leonard. And actually, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I still have it. I haven't looked at it in quite a while. But what I did at one point was I took all the powerful books that I'd read and I wanted to be able to summarize for myself the applicable take-home message from each book in a sentence. So I don't remember what I wrote for mastery, but it was some it would have been something along the lines of life is a continual practice. Mm. To make it one sentence, I would need a semicolon. Mastery isn't destination, but a process. That's really what he spoke of in that book was uh, a master of something is someone who takes their craft or that area of their life that they want to gain mastery in and uh, just immerses themselves in it and, and sort of never, never looks back and sort of never stops. And um, I think one thing that really appeals to me about that is I think our culture is going in, the, in, a, in a different direction of that, almost um, worshiping novelty. You know, why only have, you know, why really immerse yourself in, in something when you can have unlimited somethings, right? But I think there's really, really, really something lost there. Uh, and the, the example I would use is um, like, a, like a woodworker, carpenter. Someone might say, isn't it boring to make tables every day for many years or decades and what someone who's approaching it as a practice says is something like every time i make a table i learn something new about making a table i learn something new about myself i learn some nuance about table making and myself and that that nuance is glorious so it's like anti-boring yeah um, and you only get there by making 500 tables. You, you don't get it by dabbling in table making. So that, that book, that, and, and I, that's certainly how I view my profession of wellness coaching is every session 
is unique and there's, and there's um, something to learn, something to experience. Certainly how I view my personal practices around food and movement and uh, all areas of self-care. That's one that has really stuck with me. I'm struck by the way that you're able to blend doing really routine driven. You strike me as someone who lives a pretty, if not automated, like you, you know, you've got like deep grooves in the way that you habitually go through stuff. And so like that, there's one leg of, it's really important in terms of habits to have lots of consistency. And the other leg is the importance of being able to see that every, even if it ostensibly looks the same, whether it's a meal or a session that you're having with a client, you're able to see, well, this is actually completely unique. There's, there's yeah. something, the flavor maybe is a tiny bit different, or in this session, this person is bringing a different set of experiences to the table. Yeah. How do you, uh, I'm the same way. And one of the traps that I fall into is I, I become a victim of the monotony of like, I'm, I am doing the same thing over and over again. And a part of me loves that, but a part of me does want the novelty. Mm. As you were describing the mastery, I found myself kind of almost salivating at like, that is, that's what it's all about. You know, like <laughs> just keep doing it and doing it. And eventually like something just clicks. How do you keep yourself on that course without it feeling like it's a chore or that it is monotonous? Like, do you have practices in each day, in each moment? That's a, it's a good question. Uh, I think it's, it's different for, for different realms. I think, you know, what comes to me for, for say coaching is uh, because there's other people involved. If I'm tapping into their humanity, and this is true of personal relationships too, there's, there's, there's unlimited um, wonder there. Um, there. There's literally infinite wonder there. So that requires uh, curiosity. As long as I maintain, you know, it's, it's easy when we get to know a person, whether it's a, a, a client or someone in our personal life to consider them done. Like we know them, you know, we have them figured out, but that's, that's where we create boredom. And that's where we, uh, we, but we cut off um, the flow of, the wonder that exists in them and in our relation, you know, what can be discovered in our relationship. So maintaining a sense of curiosity, uh, you know, and as coaches, you know, we have tangible skills, like we know what kind of questions keep us in curiosity. We know what kind of statements stifle curiosity, but, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to the modality of motivational interviewing that I know you're familiar with and to the, the people who founded it and the people who refined it, because it is, a, it is a relatively simple modality that is incredibly powerful for maintaining, you know, when, when other wellness coaches or other coaches ask me, you know, what are the keys to your success with your clients and um, describe your system, your coaching system, uh, I'm not complex. Like I lean into, I just lean hard into motivational interviewing because it does the work. It evokes the humanity that's present, that's present in an in interaction. And I don't know if this is part of your life too, but I, I don't, I'm not coaching the people in my personal life, but that skill set of of being curious and asking open-ended questions, not dropping into problem solving and advice giving. You know, I, I do that in my personal life quite a bit and it maintains this flow of humanity. And to me, that's a part of what keeps life 
you know, really, really, really interesting. A, a, a simple way of saying that if you ever had a client, it can happen in, in our personal lives too, surprise you. It's when, if you maintain deep curiosity, people will surprise you with their courage, with their creativity. I'll often, this might come from, from all the way back to my childhood. I'll often pigeonhole a person as being less emotional. But then I, if I do a good job of being present for them and allowing them to share what's going on in their life, it's like, whoa, there is a, there is a wellspring of emotion in this person. So I think that that's, that's, that's broadly how I do it. And, you know, it doesn't, isn't, doesn't quite as tangibly reflect to things like food or music or other art, but I think it, I think it does in some way. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's my best answer at this point. It's, it's a beautiful one. Okay. I am very curious to hear some of the questions that you use. I mean, some of the, some of the basic motivational interviewing types of open-ended questions would and this isn't even a question, but one would be, could you, or it is actually, could you say more about that would be one, right? What's important to you about that would be another. Mm -hmm. Are there other ones that you use? And in, in this way, there's a way in which being curious can become a tool that it's like someone could read through like this person's just going through a list of things and that they're not actually curious about me they're just running through the list which i you know i'm guilty of that a decent amount and i i would say i'm actually better in uh in a professional way like when i'm meeting with clients than i am in my personal life so i wanted to hear from you what are some ways that maybe some open-ended questions you use, but then also ways that you're actually able to maintain the attitude because it's more than just the words. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think my answer, I'm forgetting where all this came from. I think it's an amalgamation of my coaching training and a, a good friend of mine, Mark, uh, and, and really some unofficial mentoring. Uh, he would consider himself my peer and, and in, in some ways we're peers, but he's also taught me quite a bit. And in that way, I, in some ways, hold him as a mentor. Um, but there's this idea of, um, I think the most common way it's said is something like manage oneself. And that means, because things happen when we're coaching, uh, we're, we're, we're humans, we're people. So people can bring up, our you know, clients can bring up stuff and it can take us out of be, maintaining curiosity, maintaining acceptance and, and non-judgment. So really, yeah, I practice something like, I'll use that same term, uh, staying in my true self. And it's, it needs to be calibrated. I can feel I'm in it when um, the, the two things I mentioned are probably the, the most obvious characteristics when I'm, I'm curious and I'm accepting no matter what is going on for my client or the other person. And I know I'm slipping out of it when I, the other two things I mentioned, when I'm gravitating toward problem solving and advice giving, as I describe that, it occurs to me that that usually comes with sensations of discomfort. I would say that the sensations of discomfort probably come before the impulse to problem solve or advice give. And that, that's something in the context of mastery that takes continual practice to be able to be present with a client know that they've paid good money. To some degree, they're expecting some results. 
So there's, a, there's an arrangement that it's my job to help them get some results, knowing full well that me telling them what to do over any extended timeline is not going to get the job done. And so, so to remain in any discomfort of they don't seem to be progressing in this session or over the last two or three weeks, and to know that the, the way they're going to do it, it's going to come from within them. And that these, these skills we're talking about or these tools we're talking about are the way to get there and to have full faith in them. That's what I have to do. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's, a, that's something I think I'll be able to get better at for decades. But that's, that's a, it's, not, it's not easy, but it's, it's, you, know, you and I have both gotten very proficient at it. I know we can both get more proficient at it. Um, I think that's the key for me is being able to feel some discomfort and let that discomfort flow and lean into the, the skills that I know generally help. And then maybe a, a, a more exciting way of thinking that is anticipate, don't expect, like don't put the pressure of expectation on it, but have sort of a childlike anticipation that they will surprise me. Uh, it, it will be that they do have, that's the, the idea that people, this, there's a couple of different ways of saying this from some of the different coaching lineages, but I like something like people are naturally whole, creative and resourceful. So to keep reminding myself that like, they've got this, you know, the saying you've got this, like to tell myself they've got this, I know they've got it. I don't know what it's going to look like as it unfolds for them. And that's a really, that's a really heartening way to go through life. Like imagine if, all parents had that and, and teachers had that attitude toward kids and all um, spiritual leaders had that attitude toward the people that were studying under them. And, you know, you get the idea. That's, that's the, you asked a fun question because that spirit makes the mechanics of motivational interviewing come to life. Mm. It's reminded me, I I'm sure you're familiar with this study and I'm going to do my best to be accurate about it. There was, I think it was in a high school or a college university. There was a professor who told a control group of students that they were, that it was some sort of effusive praise. It was like, they were really, they were uh, intelligent. They were working hard. They, there was some sort of built in like expectation of you guys are doing an excellent job. And I see the high, potential in you. And there was another group that was, if not told the opposite, wasn't encouraged at all. Yeah. And all things equal, the group that is encouraged and is given the leeway of like, you've, you've got this, like, you're going to be able to do this. I see the potential in you just 10 times out of 10 is going to perform better. Wow. Yeah. And there is something magical about that. It's we, as a coach, I find myself a lot of times in that I need to armor myself up with all of the knowledge and all the tools and all of the everything. Yeah. And the real, the real uh, gift is in being able to just see like this person is whole and is going to be able to resource themselves. And I'm just here to guide them towards their own wholeness and their own inner greatness. Yeah, you said two rich things in there. And you know, we're, we're practicing mastery of coaching a little bit here because I think there's two um, nuanced things there that coaches listening will find interesting and 
everyone will, will have some degree of interest in, because I think, this, especially the second thing I'm going to say is not very popular in our culture, and I think is a very, very, very important aspect of motivation. So the first thing that is quick is the armoring you described about. If I feel like I'm armoring, I know I'm going in the wrong direction. That you, the armoring is a good word when I, for the physical sensations I started to describe earlier that mm -hmm. feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the um, having faith in someone's capacity can, can be expressed in probably multiple different ways. Now, motivational interviewing gives us the tools of reflections and affirmations, which are less talked about than open-ended questions, but are you know, as important. And what's super cool about reflections and affirmations is they're different from praise. They're specifically different from praise in the sense that they're not me saying to you, I think you're doing a good job. You're, it's not me saying you're meeting my values. They're me reflecting. I'll give an example for people listening who might want to see the difference. If someone is succeeding at forming good eating habits in the way they wanted to, praise, well, in a system where they're following a, a, a guru's system, the praise is something like good job. And what a person hears is, I'm doing what the authority said I should do, and I just got a pat on the back. What reflections and affirmations do are something like, uh, I might say to someone, if someone is succeeding at forming their reading habits, I might say something like, just like you said you were going to do, just like you said is important to you. So it's not they're passing the test of my approval. Uh, it's me reflecting that, they're doing what they set out to do that was important to them for, for, the, for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. Affirmations are even more powerful. Uh, someone is, say someone is um, being very persistent. So they're having challenges and they're rising to the challenge and they're, they're sticking to the process. Instead of praise, like, good job, you're super persistent, um, which kind of comes from the spirit of me giving them a good score for persistence, you just reflect what's actually there. Like anyone could see it. You can say, when you stumble, you get right back up and keep going. And so it's, it's being a mirror and a magnifying glass to help the person see what they already are. Not that I'm evaluating them as noble or honorable or quote unquote good. Uh, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, yeah. That, I would shorthand that to a compliment or some sort of praise is a judgment. It's some sort of judgment that we have made and, and we have said, you know, like you're doing a good job based on my value system and my judgment right. of you. Right. And a reflection or an affirmation would be uh, just giving back to them what is important to them. And it's, yeah, it's, it's more of an inward, uh, yeah, intrinsically tied value system for them instead of my judgment on their values. Yeah, it, people often think, and I get asked to consult on um, various behavior change and habit formation projects, especially as more and more like digital wellness platforms are, are coming out. And I say this non-judgmentally, but the, 
the main way of thinking about behavior change and habit formation is, is more like conditioning is, is, is essentially about punishment and rewards. Mm-hmm. And what people don't realize is that this way of, of help, the way we're talking about helping people uh, pull out their intrinsic motivation to use a food analogy or food, food metaphor, habits, uh, punishment and rewards is junk food. It's like you get someone to do something and it lasts for a second and then it's gone and then they need more. And drawing out someone's true intrinsic motivation is this long lasting source of motivation that um, never extinguishes. Uh, it's two completely different games. And what's specific to the compliments and praise thing is if, if anyone really thinks about it, when, some, when you're praising and complimenting people, you like, to, it's like you said, you're judging them. So you're setting them up to, be, to receive whatever the opposite of. So what, if, that's the, if that's the motivating relationship I have with someone, what do, I, what do I do to them when they come in and they aren't succeeding? My only, if, I, if that's the game I'm playing, my job is to scold them, right? And that is, no, adult, that does, no adults want to be scolding other adults. No one wants to be on the receiving end of being scolded. I, I would call it borderline childish. It's, it's silly. It's, it's, I would use the strong word I used about my relationship with myself when I was younger. It's actually somewhat inhumane mm-hmm. or at least not very humanistic. Yeah. So, yeah, that's something that I, I'm on a, I mean, within the context of what one person can do, I'm somewhat on a mission to change public discourse around motivation, specifically around food and movement, but really around everything. And, you know, and thankfully uh, the wellness coaching field and the coaching fields in general are growing like wildfire mm-hmm. and more and more of this conversation is getting into the public discourse. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to honor your time. I know we're starting to push up on time. I just have a couple of more questions uh, before we wrap up. One, I, I love your use. Of, you know, I follow your LinkedIn content uh, pretty closely, and I love the quotes that you put out a lot of times. Do you have one or two that come to mind that uh, maybe you have up on your wall or that you live into the most? Yeah, it's funny because <laughs> if I, I, I'll share this with you sometime if you're interested. I have a bank of quotes um, in a Word document categorized you know, in different categories. And so it's extra hard for me to pick a favorite because I have so many that I like. Uh, but I actually think I can pick a favorite because I think this overarching one, um, at least at this moment in time, really resonates with, with me. Um, it's the writer, Charles Bukowski. I think I can get it word for word. I think it is, the free soul is rare, but you know it when you see it because you feel good, really good when you are near or with them. Mm. I might have missed a word, missed missed a word, a word or two, but it's it's that it's that spirit, and uh, yeah, that resonates with me because to go back to your question about definition of wellness, uh, I think that's you know I talked about just aliveness. I think you know to be who we really are, unbridled, might be the best experience there can be. And obviously that manifests in, in various different ways. So that quote is both a reminder and an aspiration to me, you know, to, 
uh, we had, you and I had an exchange recently on LinkedIn about sort of growing and being. Uh-huh. And in that statement, I have both, uh, you know, I can, I can be a free soul today and I can continue growing into that probably for the rest of my life. I'm almost certain for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, we never fully arrive. What's, what's an ordinary moment each day that brings you great joy? That's, it's a hard, it's hard to pick one on that one. Um, Cause I, I would say that I'm, you know, by no means am I uh, not my, by no means am I living a problem free life or, or anything like that. But one thing I'm grateful to be living with is something I call existential bliss. Um, you know, people are familiar with the idea of existential suffering and I certainly ha- live with that too. But I am able to experience something like real joy and real peace in doing almost anything, which brings me to some, I'm going to mention this just in case you haven't read them. I bet you have Dan Millman's books. Dan Millman's an author. One of his books, if I'm remembering it right, is called No Ordinary Moments. That's what reminded me of this. And so I, I can't pick just one, but to, this is not a quote I can paraphrase, but, uh, Alan Watts has a quote about how he cannot fathom the idea that a human being could ever be bored with just being. And he very eloquently talks about how the the instruments that are our eyes and our ears and our skin. And and that to me is is very fascinating. Like uh, I'm looking at a, a beige wall, but I don't see the boringness of beige. I see like the texture in the panels and I think that's the, I, I hear, I hear birds singing right now. That kind of stuff I think is, is always there. And this is, this is interesting in the context of this far ranging conversation we've had. I, you know, grew up with some addictive tendencies and in that sense, it takes like massive experience to have the sensation one is seeking. And to come 180 degrees from that, you can have ordinary experience and have incredible sensation, peace, and joy. And yeah, I, I, this is a great way to wrap up this conversation because I'll acknowledge that the beginning was a little difficult for me because I was swimming in some of those difficult feelings that I, I don't have buried or, or I, unresolved, but they don't, I don't go to all the time because because I don't need to. And this, you know, getting the answer to this question feels like the full circle answer to realize that, yeah, like I said, it's I don't have a, anything close to a problem-free life, but I get to experience some real peace and joy all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my reflection on that is that when I began my personal development exploration, let's say, it was very externally focused, meaning I, I had changes that I wanted to make outwardly in my life. And what I'm hearing from you is that some of the best shifts that you've been able to make were just around reorienting the way that you were seeing the world and it being this inside out experience where the, the beige wall isn't a beige wall. You're able to see maybe you didn't say all of this, but you can see in the beige wall, the texture, the different colors within the beige. And then you might even be able to get the experience of like 
the time that someone put into painting that and there's a real you can really be connected to everything and the life force behind what otherwise might appear to be mundane or monotonous or, or boring yes. and I have found those shifts to be far more profound than fantasizing about being on a, a beach somewhere or having having my life be this like easy effortless uh like peak experience type of ordeal powerful powerful yeah. yes mm -hmm. so before i ask my final question well, there's two things but is there anything that we didn't cover today that you would like to bring into the conversation no i don't think so i think there's there's you know, lots of nuance that we could have gone further on any of those things, but I think we, we covered some great ground. Where can, or where would you point people to connect to you online? I know we mentioned LinkedIn, but maybe website as well. I'm uh, on all of the common social media channels and have a website, but the easiest place at this moment is to go to LinkedIn. That's where I have most of my stuff and that's where you can connect to all of my other stuff as well. Awesome. I'll link to that in the show notes and to the listeners. I highly endorse his content on LinkedIn. It's informative. It's inspiring. It, uh, it brings a lot of different elements. It's way more than, as you could tell from this conversation, it's more than just him talking about nutrition or spilling information out into the universe. So I, I really uh, recommend that my listeners go there. And the final question, Jason, that I asked, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. I want to know in your terms, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? I'm psyched that you asked that because some of those last couple of questions had me going in some really interesting directions internally. And I knew I needed to, to, to keep it to myself in the essence of time. But yeah, I, I, I'm convinced that the meaning of life is, is to live. Um, and, and to be alive and to live fully. I have this saying that I say every morning that I'll live today or I'll live each day like it's both my first day and my last day. And what I mean by that is in the first day, I actually specifically remember I, I unconsciously first day of college, just feeling like there is so much newness, so much um, I'm going to be exposed to. And then I also remember the last day and feeling like, not to be too dramatic, but feeling like I was dying. I feeling like something really, really powerful in my life was now over. And in addition to being very sad, one thing I really, really did with that was it was like time slowed and I soaked in absolutely everything. You know, every sound, every sight, every hug, I, you know, I just felt it with everything I have and, you know, to the best of my ability, that's how I try to live every day. And, um, it's hard. It, it's hard because it comes with more feeling, um, and it almost feels like it's too much to handle, mm. but the alternative seems like a big mistake. So that's, that's to me, the, the meaning of life. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I enjoyed this just as I expected that I would. And I really admire and am a big fan of your work. And I just wanted to personally name that when I first became a coach, you were 
one of the first other coaches that I got in contact with. And uh, that will always be a big part of my growth process and, and my journey. And I, I so appreciate you, man. I, I really, it has always meant a lot to me that you've taken the time to uh, listen to me. And uh, even though it hasn't been a lot to be a, a kind of guide and to someone I see a little bit of myself in and, uh, and I look up to. So I, I really appreciate you, Jason. Thank you for saying that, Mike, and I appreciate you as well. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing our relationship in, in many ways. It, it, especially our digging into mastery makes me think yeah. there's some opportunities because that's a way, that is another way that mastery unfolds is it specifically to coaches, is taking our coaches' experiences and talking about them. With a, that's a way to massage the experience and to extract something out of it that I can't extract out solely in my own mind or in my own writing. Uh, so I think there's some good opportunity for us there that would be really fun. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful cliffhanger for us to leave with. And uh, to all the listeners, I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening and take good care. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.